Oscar River Basin, and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report on a few aspects of supermassive black holes. Christine San Jose recites with a sense of humor along the poet's row. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with Heather Brown from the Office of Sustainable Energy at the Government Center in Monticello, New York. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about programs that preserve the rural character of Sullivan County. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. More bodies have been found in the rubble of the partially collapsed condo building in Surfside, Florida. Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava on the latest death toll. The total number now of confirmed deaths is 86. A grand jury investigation has been launched into the collapse more than two weeks ago. More than 31 million people across the western U.S. are under extreme heat alerts this weekend. California residents are being told to conserve energy. The heat wave also poses a major threat to the health of those who have to work outdoors. Sierra Sanchez is an emergency relief coordinator with the United Farm Workers Foundation. Every farm worker that's out there is at risk of experiencing heat illness, of losing their life. In Death Valley, California, the temperature reached a high of 130 degrees yesterday, just four degrees shy of the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth. A trial for the accused September 11th terrorist looks increasingly unlikely now that the chief prosecutor in the case has announced his unexpected retirement. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer reports on the latest setbacks at the U.S. military court in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The retirement of Brigadier General Mark Martins was disclosed in a message to families of the nearly 3,000 people killed on 9-11. He'd previously delayed his retirement and was scheduled to serve until 2023. No clear reason was given for his early exit. Colleen Kelly's brother died in the World Trade Center attacks, and she said she wonders if Martins stepping down signals the government will abandon plans for a 9-11 trial and instead negotiate plea deals. My hope is that someone is looking at this from a 30,000-foot view and thinking, this has gone on too long. We need to chart a different course. Meanwhile, Chief Defense Counsel Brigadier General John Baker will retire in November, a move he says is voluntary. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News. At a G20 gathering in Venice, finance chiefs have forged a deal to block multinationals from putting their profits in low tax havens. NPR Sylvia Pajoli has more. The tax deal would establish a global minimum corporate tax of at least 15% to prevent multinationals from basing their profits in countries with the lowest tax rates. It would also tax companies such as Amazon and Google partially on the basis of where they sell their products, not on the location of their headquarters. 
The G20 members make up 80% of world GDP, 75% of global trade, and 60% of the world's population. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said some smaller countries are still opposed, including Ireland, Hungary, Kenya, Nigeria, and Sri Lanka. But she added that the deal would include an enforcement mechanism that prevents holdouts from undermining the agreement. Sylvia Pajoli reporting. This is NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wallenpapik, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Christine San Jose recites with a sense of humor along the poet's row. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with Heather Brown from the Office of Sustainable Energy at the Government Center in Monticello, New York. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about programs that preserve the rural character of Sullivan County. But first... Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report on a few aspects of supermassive black holes. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Supermassive black holes are thought to lurk at the center of most, if not all, large galaxies. They are millions of times the mass of the sun, but are only tens of times the diameter of the sun. An object this dense and this small exerts such an enormous gravitational pull that not even light can escape its grasp. Because light cannot escape black holes, they remain invisible to us. It is not fully understood how supermassive black holes form. Some astronomers have theorized that they form out of the collapse of massive clouds of gas and dust during the formation of the galaxy. Others postulate that supermassive black holes are the result of stellar black holes consuming large amounts of material over millions of years. Another idea is that a cluster of stellar black holes merges into a supermassive black hole. At the center of our Milky Way galaxy lies a supermassive black hole that is four million times as massive as the Sun. The supermassive black hole is known as Sagittarius A-star. To look toward the galactic center, find the constellation Sagittarius. Sagittarius is a large constellation that is hard to see, but its asterism, the teapot, is small and easy to spot. The teapot has a handle, spout, and even steam rising from the spout. The steam is the band of the Milky Way arcing across the sky. Look for Sagittarius and the teapot low in the southern sky around 10 p.m. this week. 
If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmingcountry.org. For Farming Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. Oh, I'm sorry. I should know better than to let some four centuries old poem loose along the poet's row. The language is going to need a smidge of clarification. Sorry about that. But it's a poem our dog lovers in particular will relish, or indeed anyone who suspects that a dog may well sniff out someone's true character better than many of us humans do. It's by Anne Kingsmill French, who was the Countess of Winchelsea. And she lived during some turbulent times in England. Catholics in, Catholics out, Catholics in again, this king in and out, that king in and out. And not always easy to tell who were your friends. Oh, hmm, <laughs> sound familiar? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Anyway, this is four centuries ago, and Anne Winchelsea says the dog and his master. No better dog ever kept his master's door than honest snarl, who spared nor rich nor poor, but gave the alarm when anyone drew nigh, nor let pretended friends pass fearless by, which reproved as better fed than taught, he rightly thus expostulates the fault. Okay, let's see. The dog, Snarl, is reproved for too much growling, but he's been better fed than he taught, as he, Snarl himself, is going to explain in the remaining two verses. You never told me, he says, that the only rascals I was to growl out were the obvious ones, the beggars who pretend to have a withered arm or a bum knee or pretend to be blind, or the obvious thieves we all know about who get whipped and hanged at Tyburn. And in the last verse, he runs through some of the less obvious offenders, but rascals they are too, and really offensive. So here is Snarl the dog telling his side of the story. To keep the house from rascals was my charge. The task was great and the commission large. Nor did your worship e'er declare your mind that to the begging crew it was confined, who shrink an arm, or prop an able knee, or turn up eyes till they're not seen nor see, to thieves who know the penalty of stealth, and fairly stake their necks against your wealth. These are the known delinquents of the times, and whips and Tyburn testify their crimes. But since to me there was by nature lent an exquisite discerning by the scent, I trace a flatterer when he fawns and leers, a rallying wit when he commends and jeers, the greedy parasite I grudging note, who praises the good bits that oil his throat. I mark the lady you so fondly toast, that plays your gold when all her own is lost, the knave who fences your estate by law, 
yet still retains an undermining flaw. These and a thousand more, which I can tell, provoke my growling and offend my smell. <laughs> it is a creature, oh, who doesn't give a darn for the high and mighty, shared with us by highlights. Here's Hannah from Montana, the cat. The large candle-knit hall with a spacious ceiling, light reflecting off gold and silver, a murmur of voices. In walks the cat, silent, unnoticed, curious among the royals. Takes a bath, the nerve of that little tabby who owns the world, or so it thinks, bathing with royalty in the spacious candlelit hall, with the murmur of voices and a rumbling purr. And we'll leave the last word to a wisely mellow turtle. Another little gem shared with us by highlights from Colin, who comes from Burlington, Iowa. The turtle swam by as I walked across the bridge. He winked at me as if to say, I see you, friend. Have a nice day. <laughs> if only our four-footed friends could write poetry. Oh, it would be fabulous, wouldn't it? This is Rosie Starr. I recently enjoyed a cup of tea with Christine San Jose and took the opportunity to record two of her personal haikus inspired by the recent pandemic life. Here again is Christine San Jose. Is there no respite between being bashed and death for the human heart. And then as we got vaccinated and there was light at the end of the tunnel, I found this one in my head. Full face all you can. Humans involved, try to love and you might survive. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was it. Thank you. Along the Poets Row for Farm and Country, this has been Christine San Jose. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Sullivan County has a number of programs to help preserve the rural character of the county. I've asked Heather Brown, Sustainability Coordinator in the Office of Sustainable Energy in Monticello, to tell us what the county is doing to support our farms and forests. Heather, 
How did you end up as a sustainability coordinator? That's an interesting story, and I ask myself the same thing all the time. I think one of the most common questions that I get is, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a sustainability coordinator. And people say, well, what the heck is that? Well, I started in planning in 2004 as a research assistant and worked my way up to a junior planner environmental specialist before I went to actually the Sullivan County Office of Management and Budget due to my background in research to help them look into some overall larger county projects. While I was there, I was assigned as staff to the Sullivan County Energy Commission. So in 2008, I went to the Sullivan County uh, Manager's Office and the Sullivan County Office of Management and Budget due to my background in research and served as staff at that time to the Sullivan County Energy Commission. If we remember, in 2008, fuel prices were spiking and going pretty crazy, and the county was taking a hard look at how we could save money on our fuel expenses uh, and our energy expenses in particular. So I was assigned to that commission to act as staff, and there were a series of recommendations that came out of that commission, including the Office of Sustainable Energy. Of course, within a couple of months, the economy crashed, and there was no revenue to actually staff an Office of Sustainable Energy. So we ended up contracting with the Sullivan Alliance for Sustainable Development from 2009 through 2016 to provide services related to to Sullivan County sustainability goals. In 2017, County Manager Josh Potosik made the decision to bring the office in-house, and given my background in acting as liaison with Sullivan Alliance for Sustainable Development and my background in looking into sustainability initiatives as part of my work, he appointed me as the sustainability coordinator for the new office, and that's how we got here. So a little bit of a roundabout way. (laughs) So we have a small office, but we're a very hardworking and very dedicated office. So it works pretty well. Heather, your department is involved with keeping this county's rural character. Has New York State supported you in this endeavor? New York State in 2019 passed the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act which we just affectionately refer to as the Climate Act because that's a mouthful for anyone. So it's the New York State Climate Act. One of the items that they very specifically address in there is land use. And this, of course, is something that falls a little bit more within the Division of Planning's kind of wheelhouse. And we do have a very good working relationship with the Division of Planning. We really pride ourselves on our working relationships with all of our department heads because ultimately sustainability is something that is going to run through essentially everything that we do as a county if we're being successful in our endeavors. But land use is certainly a massive topic of conversation and sometimes an area of very heated debate, of course. So as a for instance, one of the most recent pieces of New York State legislation formed a farmland protection advisory board, I believe is what they're calling it, to advise the climate the New York State Climate Action Council as to how to balance the need for renewable energies, really specifically solar, because solar is a large-scale kind of item that can take up quite a bit of our open land, and the need to balance that need for renewable energies with the need to maintain and protect our prime agricultural soils in the state. There has been an effort to strike that balance, to make sure that everyone's talking and communicating and making sure that everyone understands the needs of other parties and to make sure that we're not just building out this new infrastructure, but we're going to build out this new infrastructure in a way that is deliberate and makes sense and protects our best assets. 
when I think about it, I've gotten solicitations to take down trees to put up solar arrays. That seems like maybe not such a great trade-off. It depends on the project. And I always say to people, it's very project-specific. It's very property-specific, and it's specific to the needs of the community. It's not an ideal situation to have to damage one portion of the environment for the sake of saving another. And that's why I say you need to find the balance and you need to find the trade-off. Every project requires that you look at it with a fresh set of eyes and not compare it to other projects necessarily, but to take that project in that community for itself. Most of the time, these days you see there's there's a lot of incentives that are available for some of these projects through the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, which is NYSERDA. And NYSERDA now has eligibility requirements and they have certain project requirements that there needs to be a very clear effort made to do the least harm or just to have the least impact on the land in order to actually get the incentives for some of these larger projects. I think that earlier on in the solar industry, as it was kind of developing in New York State, it was a little bit less organized and you could see it was a new industry. It wasn't completely figured out as it's matured. I think that the protections in place for, uh, for particularly farmland, especially as well as forests, has matured and it's come a very long way. So there is a much greater emphasis on preserving those resources as we develop this infrastructure now. How are we doing here in Sullivan County? Is our agricultural land increasing or decreasing or holding its own? And what about the forests? Well, that would actually probably be a better question for the folks up at Cornell Cooperative Extension, shameless plug. We do work with Cornell Cooperative. I'm actually on their planning advisory council. It's a great relationship, and they have tons of information about that. Agriculture is a very hot topic, and it's very near and dear to most of our legislators, if not all of our legislators, honestly. It's a very important topic, but it's not really something that's in my wheelhouse. I would suggest maybe talking to Cornell. I get the impression that farming is increasing here. I don't know. It's just It's just uh, an impression, though. Which brings us to farmers' markets. Do you happen to know how many farmers' markets there are in the county and uh, whether that number is growing? Well, I just did a search actually earlier this week. Cornell Cooperative Extension, once again, they actually help to organize the farmers' markets. And they have on their website a list of all of the farmers' markets available across the county. I want to say that when I counted... There were at least 10, and that's not including the mobile market that goes directly to communities on Wednesdays and Thursdays and make various stops along its route. So there's at least 10, but it could be more than that. So I would suggest everyone go to Cornell Cooperative's website and they can check it out. It has all of the farmer's markets, hours of operation, their locations, and the days that they're open. And this is something that fits into our program. Certainly, there's a much greater emphasis in recent years on buying local and supporting local farmers from people in the community. And that's really important and actually very good from my perspective and what my office does. When you're not transporting goods and services thousands of miles across country or even across the globe, you're not emitting all of those emissions that are associated with the transport. In addition to the fact that there's a greater 
emphasis on maintaining healthy soils locally, maintaining healthy ecosystems locally that are going to produce healthy, very nutritious, delicious food to support the community. So we've been very pleased to see the emphasis on supporting and buying local and supporting local farmers. But I do know there's a couple segments in the farming industry that have really been struggling. It's, it's no secret that the dairy industry in particular has had a very difficult time in recent years. So we're looking into maybe other other uses of that land to maintain them in as active farms, giving these farmers an alternative to what they're currently doing that can still keep them fiscally viable while maintaining that prime agricultural land in active farming uses. One thing that surely is going to impact energy use around here is the population. Have you looked into projections for population growth in our county? I've not personally looked into projections for population growth. That would be something that maybe the Department of Planning has looked into, but what we do look at are things like our second home populations. And certainly in the last year, anyone that's really been paying attention has seen that the real estate market has been going a little bit crazy. And we have a lot more people that are moving up to Sullivan County, maybe even full time. People who were previously second homeowners, they seem to be spending a lot more time at their Sullivan County residence because really what's not to love? We really do live in a beautiful county. We have clean water and we have beautiful forests. We have the Delaware River. We have we really do have a lot to be thankful for living in Sullivan County. And I think the cat got out of the bag a little bit the last few years that, hey, it's pretty awesome up the mountain. Let's go check it out. So as those development pressures come in, certainly it's something that our planning department is looking at. It's something that public works has to look at just from an infrastructure standpoint. And it's obviously something that we're looking at from a sustainability perspective that it's not just a matter of getting the power to these places because that's really the utilities role. But when they're coming in, People need to understand to respect the land that they're moving to. So we're always telling people to just really get to know your neighbors, really get to know your land, and do your best to be a good steward of that land. Lastly, what is your office doing about forests, about maintaining forests? Are there programs for encouraging, well, I would have to say discouraging (laughs) destruction of forests? That's not really something that's in the purview of our office, but we do monitor it and we do look for opportunities to support those initiatives because our forests are a great opportunity for carbon sequestration. But our forests, I think that people don't understand, they're actually, they kind of protect us from a lot of ill effects of what's going on with the climate right now, with with climate change. Our forests keep us shaded. They're pumping out oxygen on a regular basis, sequestering carbon, and they are extremely important just from an ecological standpoint, just supporting a huge biodiversity of plants, animals, fish, all kinds of things. So it's extremely important that we keep an eye on that. We have been actually working through uh, NASA, receiving training through the Earth to Sky Institute, which is very specifically focused on local and regional impacts of climate change to the Upper Delaware River watershed. And that's been a really fascinating training to go through because as opposed to seeing things on a much more global scale, we're seeing things on a much more local scale. And the impacts that are currently happening and what we can identify in our communities. And that has focused very heavily on protecting uh, water quality, protecting forest health, and good agricultural practices practices in protecting local farms. That's been something that we are actively participating in, and we're going to be having a project coming out of that training that will hopefully 
get as many people that are moving up here to really appreciate the land as much as we all do up here and to even maybe get that message out to people who are already up here that maybe don't take it as seriously as everyone else. We're hoping to really get people introduced to their land and how unique and special it really is and to care for it and to be good stewards of the lands in Sullivan County. Well, we certainly hope you keep up the good work. So now you know some of the things that the Office of Sustainable Energy does to keep Sullivan County green. I want to thank Heather Brown, Sustainability Coordinator in the Office of Sustainable Energy, for telling us about what her department does. If you have some ideas for future Now You Know segments, email me, stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Enjoyed our show this week with production by volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Heather Brown, from the Office of Energy Sustainability at the Government Center in Monticello, New York. Today we heard her speaking about programs that preserve the rural character of Sullivan County. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on WJFF Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Memory returns, heartbreakingly clear, of a place I call home. Your state's name here. Summertime, we visit other places, other states. But sometimes there's just no place like your own home state. On the next Folk Plus, 